about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you, It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes, and they have closed their... They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've made it. Last chapter of Acts, we've been... Uh, Travelling through Acts for weeks and weeks and weeks. Do you remember the beginning? Wow, how exciting was that? Jesus had risen, 
There's this great celebration. He descended. Holy Spirit arrives. There's tongues of fire. People speaking different languages suddenly understand what's going on. It's, it's just an amazing scene. This church is birthed. People are giving away everything. Uh, people are running around becoming Christians. 3,000 people in the first two chapters become Christians. And then we come to chapter 28. Then it's a bit like an anticlimax, really, isn't it? Like the last scene is of Paul in a rented house, not even his own house, a rented house, under guard, greeting people, talking to them about Jesus. It kind of suits a dreary Sunday night in the middle of the school holidays. It's kind of a bit of an anticlimax, really, isn't it? It's like, well, what happened? What happened here? Like it feels just so ordinary in comparison to this great start right at the beginning of Acts. Well, tonight I just want to step back a little bit and think about Paul in particular and his journey. And I want to think about two things, or three things really. What Paul did, why Paul did it, and what it means for us. What Paul did, why Paul did it, and what it means for us. Well, as we step back and think about Paul and what he did, let's go back to the very beginning. Paul, as you remember, was an educated Jewish leader, um, and he was out persecuting Christians, putting them in jail. Uh, he was anti-Jesus, anti-Christians. And then, suddenly on the road to Damascus, there's this great transformation and for three years, he learns how to preach and he learns what it means to understand the Old Testament in light of Jesus' birth, death and resurrection. And then we see him take these great mission trips where he's planting churches, encouraging leaders. At the same time, he often finds himself in jail. He often finds himself escaping. He's been stoned to death. He's been shipwrecked three times. He has a pretty horrendous life, virtually homeless for that whole time. And then, as we saw last week, he's been arrested and sent to Rome, uh, where he's going to be tried with Caesar. And as he travels, they go into that huge storm, a storm that he didn't want to go into, and they survive the storm. The ship is wrecked. They find themselves on Malta. And they find, then make their way finally to the last bits of, uh, last, sorry, up the road to Rome. It's been a long and arduous journey. Uh, he's arrested in Rome. Sorry, he remains arrested in Rome and lives in this house. We think he's probably released after this, so it ends up with two years just there. Uh, we think that probably the accusers that brought the charges didn't actually turn up in Rome to Caesar, and so therefore the charges weren't brought forward to Caesar, and so he was free to go after two years. And then there's some conjecture about exactly where he ended up after that, maybe Spain. Um, and then we, we, we understand that he was probably martyred around uh, 64 AD. And that's it. That's his life. Now, of course, as Paul reflects on his life, he sees it as a life poured out. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, we read these words of what Paul thinks of the life that he's lived. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, 
and the time for my departure is near. You need to just get this sense of someone just pouring their whole life out. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. You get a picture of a man with tremendous energy and focus. A man who's given his whole life to serving his Lord. Whole life since he's been converted on the Damascus Road has just been poured out. Now within the book of Acts, he of course plays a very significant role in God's plans. You might remember right back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We heard these words, you receive, you receive with power the Holy Spirit and it comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that progressively unfold, first from Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, even to Rome where we find ourselves today. What's also interesting is that kind of pattern is repeated in the way that Paul has gone into each of the cities he's visited with. So even today in Acts chapter 28, as he arrives in Rome, within the first three days, having been on this hugely arduous journey, we find him speaking with the Jewish leaders. He wants to speak to the Jewish elders. He starts, as it were, in Jerusalem. And he wants to explain to them the word of God and he wants to explain how this has worked. And so he's fulfilling the mission that God has given to him and to others uh, right from the beginning of Acts. And as we've mentioned already, he's been on this long journey, circuitous route to get to Rome at this time. Don't you love the detail of this passage, actually? Just, the, you know, there's the twin gods on the front of the ship and then they, they meet in the three taverns. Can you imagine that afternoon? Hey, can we meet you at the three taverns, Paul? Let's go and have a beer. That's what it feels like, doesn't it? Um, it's, it's a lovely, and there's a lovely encouraging atmosphere, actually, as people come out from Rome to come and visit with him. It's just kind of a, a beautiful, beautiful moment. And so, uh, Paul, as he comes into um, to Rome, basically talks about the word of God. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. This is a remarkable life. A life lived out in the service of God. And it's just huge, isn't it? I don't know what it makes you feel like. It makes me feel like How could I possibly live like that? This is an extraordinary man. Look at what he's done, what God has done through him. His words are even reverberating now as we speak and as we think and as we talk these days as well. What an extraordinary... And it makes me feel like my life is small, (laughs) kind of insignificant in the midst of all of that. And so for me it raises the really significant question of Actually, what motivated Paul? What's behind all of this? What is, why is he able to pour himself out like a drink offering? And I think this, this passage gives us some clues as to why that took place. 
And so I want to spend some time sort of looking at the passage and digging a little bit deeper into it to try and understand what motivated Paul to be this man who served God in this way. And so, as we look at the passage, one of the things that struck me is his quote from Isaiah. Um, It's the longest quote from the Old Testament he has in the book of Acts. It seems interesting that it comes right near the end, that it's placed right there, and I think it's placed there for a significant reason. He's gathered the Jewish elders, he's speaking with them, he's explaining to them the Old Testament, uh, the prophets, he's trying to help them understand where Jesus fits into the, the grand story of God's plan. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. And he goes on to say to them that they've, they've missed the point. Um, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. Your hearts have become callous. Um, and then later on, otherwise, you might see, you might hear, you might understand with your hearts. You need healing. And clearly the people in front of him are neither seeing or hearing. Their hearts are hard and callous. They're not turned and they're not being healed. By implication, of course, it means that Paul has all of those things, that he has seen, that he has heard, that his heart has understood and that he has been healed. And I think that's significant, that he can speak to others like this is because it's actually happened to him. His life has been transformed. His motivations, his way of seeing the world is completely different to what it was before. Now, I don't think it's insignificant that just before this passage, we read these words. As the uh, Jewish leaders uh, were talking amongst themselves, they disagreed amongst themselves, verse 25, and Paul makes a final statement. So this is the end of the argument that we're seeing here. It's not the beginning, it's the end of the argument. And the end of the argument is you haven't seen, you haven't heard, your hearts haven't been changed and you need healing. What that suggests to me is that he had other things to say and I think it's not insignificant that the first half of Isaiah chapter 6 gives us an insight into what's actually going on here. Now the first uh, part of Isaiah chapter 6 is not actually quoted here, is it? But you cannot imagine him preaching on this part of Isaiah chapter 6 without first going to the first part of Isaiah chapter 6 as he preaches the word of God from the Old Testament and he tries to explain it from the prophets. So let's just take a moment and stand back and see what's behind this um, as he makes this statement. And I think that will help us understand the motivations of Paul. If we go back to Isaiah chapter 6, we see this great vision that Isaiah is given. Uh, it's in the first year, uh, it's in the, sorry, in the year that King Uzziah has died. And he has this great vision in the temple. Now, can you imagine walking into the temple and having a, an extraordinary vision like this one? It'd be a bit like turning up to church one night and all of a sudden you were just expecting to do the normal things as you came to church. And all of a sudden, God gives you this extraordinary vision of who he is. And Isaiah sees the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filling the temple. This is a majestic, beautiful, wonderful, magnificent God. 
and there are seraphs around, flying around, doing various things. It's, it's a huge moment. The seraphs are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah's eyes are lifted high to a wonderful and magnificent and holy God. A God who is mighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. I want to think about that word glory for a moment. What does that glory mean? Well, in the Old Testament, that, uh, the Hebrew word that's used for glory expresses the idea that glory means weight or heaviness. So that when Isaiah looks, looks up, he, he experiences the heaviness of God. The glory of God is his heaviness. Now, that has all kinds of implications, of course. It means that God is permanent, not an illusion. It means that God is substantial, not insubstantial. It means that God is real versus not real. That God, compared to anything else, is permanent, real, and matters. God's glory is revealed to him. God's heaviness is is revealed to him. And when God's heaviness is revealed to him, the whole of Isaiah's life is changed and transformed. And of course, that's what happens when something heavy rests on you. It changes you. It changes the way you are. I was trying to think of an illustration to kind of make this clear. And once upon a time, Jane and I went and did some pottery classes. Uh, Jane was really good at decorating them. I couldn't do that at all, like I made a mess. Um, what I could do is grab the clay and throw it on the wheel and sort of make mugs and pots. That's kind of what they looked like at the end. But I was able to do that. And the thing about it is, when you've got the clay on the wheel, you have to apply weight. You have to apply heaviness. And it's only as you apply that heaviness that the clay starts to form and be shaped. And things start to appear like a pot or a, or a mug or whatever. It's the weight that makes the difference as the hands are on the clay. And it's the weight of glory on Isaiah's life that makes the difference too. See, of course, you can give your glory to other things, can't you? You can glory in the success of your job or how much money you have or the relationships that you have. You can glory in all kinds of things and, of course, they bring weight to your life and they shape your life in the same way. But what Isaiah experiences here is the glory of God. And what does it lead him to do? Well, it's not surprising that it leads him to do this. It says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. As Isaiah sees a holy God and feels the weight of his glory, 
he suddenly becomes aware of his own sinfulness. He suddenly becomes aware of his own selfishness, of his own evil intent, of the way that he lives his life. He feels the weight of God's holiness and glory in his own life and he's ashamed of what he's done. He's ashamed of the way he's treated other people. He's ashamed of the way he's treated God. And so he feels this terrible, terrible weight upon him. Now it's so interesting what happens next. Uh, One of the seraphim comes with a coal. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, fire and coals and those sorts of things were often associated with judgment. So you can imagine Isaiah sitting there and seeing the seraphim come towards him with this coal thinking, I'm under God's judgment. God's going to just absolutely obliterate me and destroy me at this point. But that's actually not what takes place. The seraphim comes and touches his lips with that coal. And we read these extraordinary words. See this, he has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. Right at that moment, Isaiah not only knows the depths and the wickedness of his own heart, he not only looks at the blackness of how things are in his own life, he also realises the beauty and the richness and the light of God's grace. Because God reaches out to him and his guilt is taken away, his sins are atoned for. And of course this points forward to Jesus, who on the cross takes the wrath and judgment of God and atones for our sins to give us that same grace. So interesting then that the very next scene in this vision is this. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? As someone who's loved richly and deeply by God, as someone who's faced the darkness of his own heart and experienced the light of salvation, the the atoning sacrifice, um, being atoned for his sin, he says, send me. I'll go in obedience. I'll go. Let me go. Let me go tell your people. And it's at that point we read the quote in Acts chapter 28. And the message that Isaiah is to give is the same message that Paul is giving the people in front of him. And what I find significant is that that Isaiah moment, that beautiful picture of God's grace in Isaiah's life, is kind of repeated also in Paul's life. Did you notice that? On the Damascus Road, we hear about it three times. What does Paul, what happens to Paul? He sees a light from heaven, brighter than the sun blazing. He sees the glory of God in Jesus Christ. 
and he falls down as he should. He cannot stand. And what happens? He is raised back up. He's put on his feet. God shows him grace in Jesus Christ. And then what does happen? What happens next? He's appointed as a service servant and as a witness. And then listen to those words, he is sent. I am sending you to them. I'm going to send you as an instrument of my grace to those people so that their eyes will turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place, among, uh, place amongst those who are sanctified um, by faith in me. You see the parallels of what happened to Isaiah and what happens to Paul? And I think what's happening here is something really significant for us as well. You see, God has moved from just being a concept and an idea and a thought and maybe some kind of religious figure to being real. To being present. To being a holy and a holy God who is to be worshipped and adored. A holy God who sends people out. A holy God who sent his son into this world to call a people for himself. God becomes real. He's not an object, he's not an idea. He becomes present. And both of these men feel the weight of God's glory. And it's in light of that weight that their lives are shaped and they dedicate themselves to serving him in all that they do. Now, of course, as we mentioned a little bit earlier on, Paul had a specific way of doing that. He was called for a specific purpose in the book of Acts to go out and preach the good news of Jesus Christ first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And we see that's what he's doing here in Acts chapter 28 as he repeats this passage to the Jews in front of him. And he says to them, if you're not going to listen, I'm going to go and preach to the Gentiles. And so Paul has this special moment in history, if you like. And the truth is we can't follow that special moment in the same way. We're not Paul. We can't be Paul. And yet we can have that experience of God coming into our lives and transforming us in that same way. We too can experience the weight of God's glory in the same way that Paul has. And that too can shape our lives. Now while it's true we might not be able to do exactly the same things as Paul, what is true is something else about Paul. One of the things you notice about Paul is that he lives his life for Jesus. It's not just his words, he just, he just lives Jesus. And so when I think about Paul and I think about his journeys and I think about him pouring himself out, he's doing it in response, in obedience to the call from Jesus Christ as a result of what Christ has done for him. What does he simply do? Well, he lives Jesus every day. That's what he does. He lives Jesus every day. 
as he goes about his work, as he goes about tent making, as he goes about speaking to people, as he's in jail, as he's being stoned, as he's been in shipwrecks, as he's travelling from one place to another, as he's meeting people in taverns, what is he doing? He's just living Jesus every day. And in many ways, that's what we're called to do with our lives, to pour ourselves out just by living for Jesus every day. And so as we come to the end of this great journey uh, through the book of Acts where all these spectacular things have happened, it actually turns out that it's in the ordinary every day that we're called to live out what God is doing in the power of his spirit. And so can I invite you this evening as we finish this series to think about what it means for you to live Jesus just every day in his power and in his strength. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.